Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. Imagine you were going to write a book that would be read by billions of people. What would be the first words you would write? I know what you're thinking. If you want to really hook the reader, you should start with some genealogy. That's going to get people excited. This is, of course, exactly what Matthew does as he starts his book, which has been read by billions of people. When we read Matthew chapter 1, we often just skim the genealogy, but take a look at the names Matthew presents. If you read through the genealogy, you'll see some familiar people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you'll see David and Solomon. We spent time talking about them during the United Kingdom. Ahaz and Hezekiah from when we studied Isaiah are on the list. Why does Matthew begin with genealogy? At least part of his purpose is to portray Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And he does this in a couple of different ways. For example, his genealogy begins with Abraham. Matthew is emphasizing the connection between Jesus and Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. Another thing Matthew emphasizes in his genealogy is the number 14. He says that from Abraham to David was 14 generations. From David to the fall of Babylon was 14 generations. And from the fall of Babylon to Christ was 14 generations. Why the emphasis on 14? One reason seems to be gematria. Gematria puts a numerical value on each letter. So in English, A would equal 1, B would equal 2, and so forth. Matthew uses gematria in the genealogy to convey a meaning. In Hebrew, the name David has a numerical value of 14. In other words, by mentioning King David multiple times in the genealogy, and by highlighting the number 14, Matthew seems to be communicating to his first century readers that Jesus is the son of David. Why would his original readers care about this? If we were Jewish people living in the decades after Christ, we might remember that back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord said to David, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So David's descendants were promised a permanent reign. If we were living under Roman dominion, we might wonder, what does this promise mean for me today? Matthew wants first century readers to know that there is a descendant of David, Jesus, who is reigning. This idea is important to Matthew. He uses the term son of David almost twice as often as all of the other gospel authors combined. For example, only Matthew records that in the triumphal entry, as Christ enters Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion, that the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This was a way of the people proclaiming Christ as the rightful ruler, something which was threatening to some of the Jewish authorities. By calling Jesus the son of David, Matthew refers to Christ's kingship. Remember that in ancient times, the king was seen as God's representative to the people. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is God's true representative here on earth. So 14 is a special number in Matthew's genealogy. Speaking of the number 14, many years ago, someone about the age of 14 had an experience with a divine being. It changed the course of the world. 
Prophets saw this person in visions centuries in advance. God chose this young person for a special mission. Who am I describing? You might be thinking about Joseph Smith, and in fact, this statement does describe him. But it also describes Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some Christian faith traditions heavily emphasize Mary's importance. I wonder if some of us have swung to the opposite side of the pendulum and don't think about her as much as we should. Mary is a powerful witness of Jesus Christ. We often celebrate the 14-year-old boy who helped kick off the restoration. Maybe we should spend a little bit more time celebrating the 14-year-old girl who helped kick off the redemption. It's interesting to note that Nephi had a vision of Mary almost 600 years before she was born. The angel showed him just a few highlights from world history, and one of those highlights was Mary and her important role. King Benjamin, who gave an address 100 years before Mary was born, spoke about her. He prophesied that the mother of Jesus would be called Mary. Alma did this as well. Clearly, Mary is a very important person. One of the ways Matthew highlights Mary is by including her in Jesus's genealogy. In fact, there are five women listed in Jesus's genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. These women all have interesting stories. I'll share just one of these stories to give you a feel for them, and then we'll talk about why Matthew may have chosen to include these specific women. The first woman Matthew mentions is Tamar. Her story is a bit unsavory, so it's not talked about in primary, but here's the basic storyline. Judah, as in one of the 12 sons of Israel, had three sons. His oldest son married Tamar, and then he died. So the second son half-heartedly fulfilled his traditional duty and married Tamar. Then he died. Judah, seeing a trend, didn't want to have his third son marry Tamar because what if he dies? Under Jewish law, Judah had the responsibility to let Tamar marry his third son, but Judah didn't fulfill this responsibility. Meanwhile, Tamar was getting frustrated because she wanted to have a baby. That was her right, and Judah was withholding his son from her. So she came up with a plan. She disguised herself as a prostitute and went to a road where she knew Judah would be walking. When Judah saw her, he didn't recognize her and asked if he could engage her services. He didn't have anything to pay her, so she said, why don't you just give me your staff as a temporary payment? And then once you bring me the real payment, I'll give you your staff back. Judah liked that idea and they consummated their agreement. Afterwards, Tamar returned home and took off her disguise. When Judah returned with payment, he couldn't find her, and so he thought his staff was gone forever. About three months later, it was discovered that Tamar was pregnant. Judah got mad and said, my daughter-in-law has been a whore. Let's burn her. When Tamar came before Judah, she said, yes, I am pregnant. And by the way, Judah, here's the staff of the guy who got me pregnant. Judah, realizing what had happened, said, you have been more righteous than I have been. This is my fault. I should have given you my third son. So Tamar was not put to death. Instead, she bears twins, both of whom are named in Jesus's genealogy. This story is part of the Savior's heritage. The other women also have interesting backgrounds. Rahab is a prostitute. Ruth is a foreigner who approaches Boaz in the middle of the night. Bathsheba has a controversial connection with David. In other words, each one of these individuals has something unusual about them as women, particularly in terms of their marriage or childbearing. Why might Matthew include these particular women? As a modern reader, I find that this is a powerful example that even if our parents or other ancestors struggled, it doesn't need to define who we are. 
Jesus' background had its fair share of difficult stories. Another insight for modern readers is that God works through imperfect people, as well as those who are on the margins of society. All can be participants in helping to bring forth his work. A first century reader might see different meaning in Matthew's inclusion of these particular women. Rumors were circulating, even in the Savior's day, that Jesus was an illegitimate child. In the words of scholar Raymond Brown, the backgrounds to the marital unions of all four women, with the husbands mentioned in the genealogy, were irregular. Yet the women themselves were the instruments of God in continuing the messianic line. Does that prepare for the unusualness of Mary's conceiving? Put more simply, perhaps Matthew is saying, to those of you who are hearing rumors about Jesus being an illegitimate child, just remember that in King David's life and among his ancestors, there were some unusual birth stories, but that was part of God's work. So don't be alarmed when you hear unusual stories about Jesus's background. Turn with me to where we're introduced to Mary in Luke chapter one. This is sometimes called the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel comes to announce to Mary that she will give birth to the Son of God. Beginning in verse 26, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. At the time, Mary was engaged to Joseph, and engagement in her culture was an even greater commitment than engagement is today. She and Joseph had already made covenants and had a ceremony, so although they weren't living together, they were really connected. During this time, it was common for a young woman to get engaged between the ages of 12 and 16. So when I say Mary was 14, that's not necessarily accurate. Maybe she was 16, maybe she was 12. But for the sake of discussion, imagine yourself as a 14-year-old young woman and an angel appears to you and tells you, you will give birth to the Son of God. Can you imagine what Mary might have felt? I love the way this is framed by a Catholic priest named James Martin, who illustrates that no matter what metric you use, Mary would have been considered weak in her culture. He says, first, she was a woman. Second, she was young. Third, she was most likely poor and living in an insignificant town. Finally, she was a Jew living in a land ultimately ruled by the Roman Empire. Taken together, Mary can be seen as a figure with little power. For a more contemporary image, think of God's appearing to a young girl in a small village in Africa. Mary is a powerful manifestation of Paul's teaching, God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Mary feels her inadequacy as the angel is telling her all these great things. In verse 34, Mary says to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I am a virgin? In response, Gabriel says, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. As readers of Luke 1, you and I already know that Elizabeth is pregnant because Luke tells us that at the very beginning. 
But Luke also says that once Elizabeth became pregnant, she hid herself. So it's possible that this was news to Mary. Elizabeth has been in hiding. And Gabriel said, a miracle has happened to Elizabeth, and a miracle can happen to you as well. I love how Gabriel gives Mary this reassurance. With God, nothing shall be impossible. In the King James Version, Mary's final response is, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. That's a phrase you might want to highlight. We don't use the word handmaid very often. In fact, you've probably never used it in casual conversation. But if we were to refer back to our friend, the Blue Letter Bible, we would see that the Greek word that's translated as handmaid means slave. In other words, Mary is saying, I am the Lord's servant. This is one of many ways we can learn from Mary's example. Do you and I consider ourselves to be the Lord's servant? When you and I pray each morning, do we ask God for a list of things we want? Or do we ask God how we can serve Him? Do I say, Lord, what you need me to do for you today? Call on me because I'm ready to go. That's the spirit of Mary's attitude. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. After speaking with Gabriel, Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth and sees that Elizabeth is pregnant. In fact, as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, John the Baptist in the womb starts jumping. Elizabeth recognizes Mary as the mother of Christ. It's a beautiful moment. In response to Elizabeth, Mary says a poem or a song that has become known as the Magnificat, based on the first word in Latin. In English, it's the fourth word, magnify. This is a famous song in many Christian traditions, although it can be lesser known among some Latter-day Saints. Let's read it together in Luke 1, 46-55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. What a beautiful song of redemption. The Lord is showing mercy. He is filling those who are hungry. Reflect also for a moment on that first line, my soul magnifies the Lord. What would our lives be like if we walked around thinking, my soul magnifies the Lord? To magnify is to intensify, to make big. What would that look like in our lives? I love how Mary sets an example of magnifying the Lord in her soul. After spending three months with Elizabeth, Mary returned to Nazareth. In a future class, we'll talk more about learning about Jesus from movies, but for now, I want to highlight a movie that helped me see the circumstances surrounding Christ's birth in a new way. It's called The Nativity Story. I highly recommend this movie. In the scene where Mary comes back from visiting Elizabeth, she gets out of the wagon and a child in the village comes to greet her. The child pats a small bump on Mary's stomach and Joseph and Mary's father look at each other. Of course, this is just a movie, but it made me think about a moment I hadn't thought a lot about. How did Mary tell her parents and Joseph about her pregnancy? Who did she tell first? How did they feel? How did they respond? Have you ever thought about the humanity of this moment? 
I'm not exactly sure what happened. In the movie, Mary's mother says to her, an angel told you this? You can tell she's doubtful. You can feel the challenge that this circumstance was. How would you feel if your 14-year-old sister or 14-year-old daughter came to you and said, well, I got visited by an angel and I'm miraculously pregnant? You can see how this would be hard to believe. Again, think of the humanity of this moment. Nazareth is a small town with a population between 500 and 1,000 people. When a 14-year-old gets pregnant outside of wedlock, people are going to remember that. Jesus will grow up with rumors about him being an illegitimate child. How does that make him feel? How does Mary feel living her whole life under this supposed stain? Have you ever thought about the cost Mary paid to be the mother of the Son of God? And can you imagine Joseph? What an incredible man to humble himself to receive revelation and then move forward even in a difficult dilemma. Sometimes we are so familiar with the story that we miss some of the real power and drama that comes with seeing these individuals for who they are and how great they were, even in very challenging circumstances. Let's turn from Nazareth to Bethlehem and talk a little bit about the birth of Christ. I found that sometimes we can mix up the scriptural details with traditions we've grown up with. For example, the scriptures don't specify that there were three wise men. The scriptures don't say anything about a star in the story with the shepherds. The wise men come to visit Jesus several months after the birth. There's lots of these little details, and I've made a short video to test your knowledge of the Christmas story. You can find it on the course website. But for now, I just want to highlight three responses to Christ's birth from the shepherds, the wise men, and Mary. First, the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth are told by an angel, go find Jesus, and they drop everything to find him. The wise men are different. They don't arrive for a couple of years. They don't see an angel. They work hard. They're looking at different signs in the sky, trying to figure things out, traveling long distances. I think we can see in the shepherds and the wise men two different models of how to seek Jesus. Sometimes Jesus will come knocking at our door, and we have to drop everything to immediately seek him. Sometimes we need to be like the wise men. We need to put diligent effort into our search for Jesus. I love seeing these two groups of people who both seek him in different ways. And of course, we also have Mary. She didn't have to travel. She just focused on being present. We read, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Are there times when you and I just need to slow down, be where we are, and ponder on how Christ is working in our lives? Consider another moment from Christ's earliest years that we sometimes glide by. After the wise men left, we read, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. The text suggests that Mary and Joseph immediately acted on this prompting. What does it feel like to be a relatively newlywed couple fleeing to a foreign country? One of my favorite places to visit in Bethlehem is known today as the Milk Grotto. Tradition says that as Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, they stopped at this small cave so that Mary could nurse Jesus. To be clear, there's no historical evidence to suggest that Mary and Joseph actually stopped at this cave, but like many of the things we've discussed, going to the Milk Grotto reminds me of Mary's humanity. She may or may not have nursed the baby Jesus in that specific cave, but she almost certainly nursed him somewhere. 
the milk grotto reminds me to stop and think about what a young woman, now perhaps 15 or 16 years old, feels like when she, along with her new husband, flee her country to become refugees. That was Mary's lived experience. Of course, the reason Mary and Joseph had to flee was because of the threat posed by King Herod. On one occasion, I was at the burial place of Herod with my colleague, Matt Gray. He described the historical differences between Herod's monumental tomb and Christ's humble place of birth, showing that Herod and Christ had two very different types of kingdoms. Let's learn a little more about Herod. In our previous class, we talked about how the Roman Senate appointed Herod as king of the Jews. Think about being appointed king of the Jews and how that's a little bit different from what the wise men asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod is not a king by birth. He's a king by appointment. So to hear someone who is born king of the Jews is quite threatening for him. Herod is a pretty messed up guy, and this is going to cause him to go over the edge and lead to the slaughter of young children in Bethlehem. Let's learn a little bit more about Herod. Ancient historians like Josephus wrote quite a bit about him, so there's a lot more to learn about Herod than what is available in the Bible. He's called Herod the Great in part because he was a great builder. Not only did he do the massive remodel of the temple complex, he built several fortresses and palaces, including a winter palace in Jericho. But his personal life left a lot to be desired. Let me give a few illustrations. One of Herod's wives was named Mariamne. She was a Hasmonean princess. Marrying a Hasmonean princess bolstered Herod's status by connecting him with Jewish royalty. Mariamne had a 17-year-old younger brother named Aristobulus. Mariamne asked Herod to appoint Aristobulus to be the high priest, and Herod did so. But when Aristobulus appeared before the people in his high priestly robes, everyone in the audience clapped and cheered. And to Herod, that was threatening, because Aristobulus, being a Hasmonean, actually had, at least in the eyes of some, a legitimate claim to the throne. Herod was jealous of Aristobulus, and so he invited his young brother-in-law to come have a little vacation with him at his Jericho palace. One of Herod's luxuries was that he had a nice pool at the palace. I don't know if they were playing Marco Polo or some other game, but things turned violent and Herod's guards drowned Aristobulus. That shows you the kind of guy Herod was. He also executed several of his own children, reportedly leading the emperor to say, it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. The words for pig and son are similar in Greek, so this was a play on words, suggesting that because Herod didn't eat pork, his pig was safe, but his kids weren't. Not to be overly dramatic, but there's one more story I want to tell you about Herod. He was enamored with his wife, Mariamne. At one point, he left on a trip, and he thought there was a chance he would die on this trip. So he said to his brother-in-law, keep this a secret, but I love Mariamne so much, I can't bear the thought of her being alive if I'm dead. So if I die on this trip, please kill her for me. Well, if that's not true love, I don't know what is, right? Herod left on his trip, and Mariamne was home. One day, maybe she seemed sad or lonely, Herod's brother-in-law told her, don't be depressed. Herod really loves you. In fact, he loves you so much, he said if he dies, I should kill you. For some reason, this expression of affection did not impress Mariamne. Well, Herod did not die. And when he came back, maybe he was telling Mariamne something about how much he loved her. And she said, well, I know what kind of a jerk you are. You were going to kill me if you died. Herod freaked out and he thought to himself, the only way that my brother-in-law would have told Mariamne my secret is if they are cheating on me together. And so we had them both executed. Herod was not a nice guy and he didn't die a nice death. The historian Josephus wrote of Herod's death saying, there was an intolerable itching all over the surface of Herod's body 
and continual pains in his colon and dropsical tumors about his feet and an inflammation of the abdomen and a putrefaction of his privy member that produced worms. He could not breathe, but when he sat upright and had a convulsion of all his members, insomuch that the diviners said, those diseases were a punishment upon him for what he had done. Herod reminds us of Mormon's statement that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. Towards the end of his life, Herod was troubled because he was worried that his kingdom would be taken away. Contrast that with Christ on trial before Pilate. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Two individuals, both called the king of the Jews, but they were focused on building very different kinds of kingdoms. The question for us is, which of these two kingdoms are we trying to build and become a part of? There's more that we could say about Christ's birth, but let's move to his baptism. In our previous class, we talked about doing a synopsis study where you carefully examine what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said about a specific event. This is helpful to do with Christ's baptism, and if you'd like to do an in-depth study, there are some resources you can access at the course website. For now, I'll just point out one difference you can find from doing a synopsis study. I learned this on another field trip, this time at the Jordan River, as I listened to a devotional by Matt Gray. If I were to ask you, what did the voice from heaven say at Christ's baptism? You would probably think of Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 3, after Christ was baptized, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But Mark and Luke record things differently. In Luke 3, we read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. So in Luke's account, John the Baptist has baptized Jesus, and now Jesus is praying. Continuing, we read, The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In this account, and in Mark, this is a message that's coming directly from God to Jesus. That's tender. It shows that in response to Jesus' acts of devotion and prayer, God gave him messages of love and encouragement. He does the same for us. Obviously, Jesus already knew he was God's son. He knew that as a 12-year-old at the temple. Perhaps this additional manifestation was another layer in Christ's own understanding. Right after his baptism, Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. Note that in Luke 4.1, it says that Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Christ is following the Spirit, and he's about to be tempted. Sometimes, even when we're doing our best to stay on the right path, temptation will come. The devil came to Christ and said, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. A few verses later, the devil tempted, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Remember that at Christ's baptism, God directly said to Jesus, You are my Son. We could consider this a revelation of sorts even if Jesus already knew it on some level. Then the very next thing that happens is Satan comes to attack that message if you are the Son of God. Have you ever felt an impression from the Holy Ghost and then as you're trying to move forward in that direction, you've been tempted to doubt the revelation you received? This can happen in all sorts of areas. Maybe you felt inspired to serve a mission, but then temptation comes. Or you feel inspired to get married and obstacles begin to arrive. Perhaps we see in the temptations of Christ an example of something like that occurring in the Savior's life. 
This is an important topic because sometimes as we're seeking revelation, the Lord gives us a stupor of thought, which is a way of saying, pull back. On the other hand, sometimes the devil tries to plant fear in our hearts, getting us to pull back when instead we should be moving forward. Learning to discern the difference between the two is important. In a powerful talk called Cast Not Away Your Confidence, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught, I wish to encourage every one of us regarding the opposition that so often comes after enlightened decisions have been made, after moments of revelation and conviction have given us a peace and an assurance we thought we would never lose. With any major decision, there are cautions and considerations to make, but once there has been illumination, beware the temptation to retreat from a good thing. If it was right when you prayed about it and trusted it and lived for it, it is right now. Don't give up when the pressure mounts. Certainly don't give in to that being who is bent on the destruction of your happiness. Face your doubts. Master your fears. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you. I remember an experience from my life when I was dating a young lady and we were about to take a road trip together. I had felt inspired to ask her to join me on the trip and felt like it would be an important event. But on the morning of our trip, I felt this immense fear. The devil was tempting me to pull back from what I had felt was right. I got a blessing from my roommate, took courage, and went forward with his trip. And there's a long story associated with that trip, and I'll tell you about it in a future class. But as a spoiler, it led to Lonnie and I getting married. One lesson we can learn from Christ dealing with temptation is cast not away your confidence. Let's look at the specific three temptations that are recounted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Satan tempted Christ to turn stones to bread to jump off the temple in front of everyone and to claim all the earthly treasures of the world. I don't know about you, maybe the treasures of the world sound tempting, but I have never been tempted to jump off the temple in front of everyone or to turn stones into bread. But think about these temptations from a broader perspective. Turn stones into bread could be put your physical needs, your body, your comfort above everything else. Jump off the temple reminds us of pride. Show everyone how great you are. All the treasures of the world is seeking for worldly power and treasure ahead of seeking God's kingdom. These are temptations we can relate to. Christ was tempted in the same ways we are. We can learn from how Jesus responds to each of these temptations. With each temptation, Jesus responds with scripture. Satan says, turn stones to bread. Jesus answers and quotes Deuteronomy, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Satan says, hey, you know, it will really impress people if you jump off the temple. Angels will catch you. Jesus responds, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When Satan tempts Jesus with glory in all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 saying, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. One lesson we can learn from the Savior's temptations is to memorize a few verses of Scripture. You and I are going to be tempted. Reciting scripture can help us resist temptation. A woman named Alejandra shared an experience that helped me understand the power of memorizing scriptures. As a seminary student, she memorized the doctrinal mastery verses. When she went to college, most of her friends did not share her standards. They frequently invited her to participate in activities that were not appropriate. Normally, Alejandra declined, but one evening she was feeling particularly lonely. Maybe it wouldn't hurt to go with them one time, she thought. As she was trying to decide whether or not she should go, the words from a verse she had memorized came to her mind. She decided not to go. 
That night, Alejandro's friends were drinking and driving, and a terrible car accident occurred. Alejandro was so grateful to have memorized a scripture that came to her mind in a time of need. Perhaps you and I could find some moments where we could memorize scriptures about the Savior. Another lesson we learn from Christ's experience in the wilderness is that temptation is ongoing. It's not something we face today, conquer, and then never see again. This was not the only time Christ was tempted. Luke records, When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. The devil would be back, but Jesus would be ready. And through Christ, we can also be prepared to resist the devil's persuasive ideas. One key lesson from Jesus' temptations is the simple fact that Jesus was tempted. The word tempt suggests something really enticing or alluring. Jesus had a real opportunity to sin, but he chose not to do so. The author of the book of Hebrews writes, Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you ever tempted? Do you struggle with temptations? Jesus can help. He knows what that's like. We read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. We know this in our heads, but let it sink into our hearts. Do you think about Jesus being tempted in every way, just as we are, but he didn't sin, he resisted? Therefore, Hebrews says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You and I can have total confidence going to the throne of God saying, Heavenly Father, I'm being tempted. Send me strength through thy son, Jesus Christ. Help me resist the temptation. Because Jesus Christ has experienced temptation, he can strengthen us in the temptations we receive. As we conclude today, please take a moment to think about this question. What could you take from today's class and apply in your life? Whether you take a principle from Mary, her being a slave to the Lord, or her soul magnifying the Lord, or a lesson about resisting temptation, or something completely different, I hope there's a nugget from this class that you'll bring deep into your heart and act on. The things that we've talked about today are true. These aren't just stories. This is the real life of Jesus and it can bless us in our lives today. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.